Genesis chapter 6, we took a look briefly at a little bit of, uh, about Noah, uh, but we want to talk about him more in detail tonight uh, as we get to Captain Noah's unsinkable ship. Genesis chapter 6. There we go. Without a doubt, one of the most famous ships that's ever sailed is the ship called the HMS Titanic. Remember, the Titanic was uh, a state-of-the-art ocean liner. It was 882.5 feet long, had a beam of 92.5 feet and 60.5 feet from the water line to the boat deck. Now that's a little bit bigger than some what you pull around and put in the lake around here, isn't it? But uh, the Titanic consisted of nine decks designed to remain afloat with any two compartments completely flooded, and possibly even three. could carry 329 passengers first class, 285 passengers in second class, and 710 passengers third class. And uh, on her maiden voyage across the Atlantic, she carried 2,227 200, on board. When the Titanic sank on April the 15th, 1912, of her 2,227 passengers and crew, only 705 survived. It was widely regarded as the Olympic-class liner, which largely was unsinkable. And they and self, the, they, uh, they, was, uh, they had their lifeboats and so forth, and, and uh, yet uh, uh, the boast was made that the Titanic was never going to be sunk. The only ship that did better, uh, it, that was better known, is probably the HMS Deliverance and its captain by a man of, by the name of Noah. You didn't know it was called Deliverance, did you? The Ark. Well, uh, that would have been a good name for it, I think, right? Deliverance. And it indeed was an unsinkable ship. Of course, in its construction, its cargo and crew, its maiden and final voyage are of great importance and nearly three chapters are taken up to tell its story. So we want to consider this story tonight, this account of Noah and his unsinkable ship. Notice with me, first of all, a society destitute of God, a society destitute of God. Now, two, perhaps two of the saddest verses of the Bible describe the conditions of Noah's day. We read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then verse 6, And it repented the Lord that He had made man on earth, and it grieved Him at His heart. Now things were so bad in those days that it grieved God that He had ever made man. And the wickedness of man broke the heart of God. It ripped His heart apart to see how His creation was living. Now notice, first of all, it was a time of spiritual departure, spiritual departure. 
In chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we read, And it came to pass, when the men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man for what he also is, for that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now we see two very distinct classes that are referred to. He says the sons of God, and he says also the daughters of men. Now there's been a lot of debate uh, that's taken place over the years about who the sons of God are and who the daughters of men are. And some have suggested that the sons of God were fallen angels or angelic creatures who had descended to the earth and married women, that is, daughters of men. The problem with that is there's really no other scriptural basis for that. In fact, it is biologically impossible. Jesus indicated that the angelic realm is a sexless race not having reproductive ability. So there's a problem with that kind of thinking. It would seem in the context of chapter 5 that the sons of God is probably more a, likely a, a reference to the sons of a godly heritage, and that would be the heritage or the line of Seth. There had apparently been an effort by the godly line to keep themselves separate from the ungodly world around them, and rightly so. But over the centuries, the sons of the godly line began to notice the young women of the daughters of men. And if that be the case, then we can no doubt make note of a couple of observations. First of all, the first observation would be this. If ungodly women then were anything like ungodly women today, they likely dressed in provocative and immodest fashion and were not scrupulous in their morals. The attractive young women of the world caught the attention of the sons of the godly line. That's the first observation. The second observation would be this. Evidently, there was a breakdown in the principle of separation of the godly line just as there has been a breakdown in the same principle in many cases today. The Bible is very clear that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is, young people who are looking for a life's partner need to look in the godly, saved person. They need to find a godly, saved person to marry. You see, the children of the godly line began to intermingle with the ungodly. The ungodly of the world's crowd. And accordingly, the offspring of the godly line began to intermarry with the world's crowd of that day. The spiritual purity and the integrity of the godly line was compromised to the point it virtually ceased to exist. And the godless society which developed was that which God determined to destroy. Only Noah had kept his family separated and righteous. And I think we could rightly conclude that Noah's daughters-in-law were from that godly line and that it's imperative that Noah's sons didn't get by with the excuse, well, everybody else is doing it. No, Noah wouldn't let that fly, would he? And we shouldn't either. We shouldn't say, well, the rest of the world's doing it, so we can too. 
While the rest of the world had forsaken and forgotten, God, Noah, and his family had not. And so here we have a picture of spiritual departure. God was forsaken and forgotten. Their back was turned to the spiritual and they turned toward the physical and the sensual. There was no place for God. There was no room for God. There was no time for God. There was no desire for God. It was a time of spiritual apostasy. So first of all, a spiritual de departure. Now notice also we see it was a time of shameless depravity. Shameless depravity. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, that they bare children to them, that the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. Verse 5, And God saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. One evil generation produced an even more evil generation. And the word wickedness here in verse 5 speaks of lewdness and moral depravity. It was a society without morals, without standards. Uh, this is a statement in verse 5 which describes how immoral that day was. We, we read, Every imagination of their heart was only evil continually. Uh, the word imagination means to fashion as a potter. Their minds fashioned and formed vile and filthy and perverted causes and lifestyle. And the dirtier the better. The viler the better. They lived to sin and they daily sought to discover more vile ways to sin. You go down to verse 11 of chapter 6 and you notice there, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted His way upon the earth. It says there that the, the earth was full of corruption. God said that all flesh was corrupt. The whole world was in the lap of wickedness. Can you imagine living in a society where nothing was wrong and everything was right? Can you imagine that? It's not too hard, is it? It's not quite as hard as it used to be even. Can you imagine living in a society where everybody lived in sin or lived to sin and, and, and see how immoral or how sinful they could become? It's certainly becoming more and more that way today, isn't it? And it's no wonder God was grieved. It was a society devoid and destitute of God. So secondly, think with me, uh, though, of a saint devoted to God. We see a society destitute of God. Look at, secondly, a saint devoted to God. Against this dark, immoral backdrop, there was a bright, shining light. There was one exception to this degenerate society. And we find in verse 8, it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Someone has written, With the world crumbling around him, that giant figure towering above his time, hewn out of granite, standing by, like a lonely monolith pointing to the sky. In society that had exhausted the patience of God, there's one man 
and his family that experienced the grace of God. Now, Noah reminds us that no matter how wicked things can get, how wicked things are around us, we can still live for God. It doesn't matter how wicked and how godless our society is, we can still live for God. Why? Because in verse 9, notice what it says. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. Notice with me, we see that Noah, first of all, was unaffected, unaffected by the world. Noah was a just man. He was a righteous man. He was a godly man that, uh, in an ungodly world. He was a man right with God. It doesn't matter how your husband or your wife lives. You ought to live for God. It doesn't matter if you are the only person in your school or in your workplace, or in your neighborhood that lives for God, you ought to draw the line and say, I'm going to live for God, no matter what. He was unaffected by the world. Secondly, we see he was uncontaminated by the world. Uncontaminated. The Bible also says that Noah was perfect in his generation. Now that word perfect does not mean sinless, but it does mean blameless. In a day when everybody was living a corrupt life, Noah was living a clean life. There was not one thing about the life of Noah that one could point to and say that he was wrong in that. The Bible says in James 1, verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep thyself unspotted from the world. And like Noah, we must keep ourselves unspotted from the world. So he was unaffected by the world. He was uncontaminated by the world. Thirdly, we see he was unmoved. Unmoved by the world. It says here, Noah walked with God. And the world was going in one direction, but Noah was going in the other direction. He was going in God's direction. I read uh, an article about... uh, a parade in which a high school band was marching. Everybody was in step but the tuba player. I mean, if you had to carry a big old tuba, you'd probably get out of step too. But when they got to the end of the parade, the band director, kind of upset with the tuba player, walked over to him and to find out why he had been out of step. And he found that the tuba player had been listening to a radio while he was marching. That is, he was listening to a transistor radio. Now, I know some of you young people don't know what a transistor radio is, do you? You just know what an MP3 player is, and you kind of, you know, plug that. It's kind of that same thing, maybe a little bigger. But this fellow was listening to a transistor radio. He had marched to the beat of a different drummer. He was out of step. Noah marched to the beat of a different drummer. He was unaffected by the world, he was uncontaminated by the world, and he was unmoved by the world. And we that proclaim the name of Jesus are to be no different than Noah. We're to be unaffected by the world, we're to be uncontaminated by the world, and unmoved by the world. Years ago when a reporter asked George Brett of the Kansas City Royals what he wanted to do in his 
last at bat. He said, I want to hit a routine grounder to second, run all out to first base, and then get thrown out by a half a step. I want to leave an example to young guys that it's how to, that's how you play the game. You play it all out. Noah wasn't that kind of a man. He was an all-out person. And you know what? You, you and I should be all out for God as well. It doesn't matter what anybody else does when they come to the plate. We should say by the help and grace of God, I'm going to be an out, all out for God. You see, Noah was willing to stand alone. Now, before we go on, let me just point out quickly, and I say quickly, nine principles for standing alone in the wicked world. We're going to do this quickly, and this is extra. It won't cost you anything extra tonight, so uh, we're just going to give you these nine uh, rapid-fire uh, principles, okay? Uh, you got blanks for them on your... All right. I know some of you people say, oh boy, he's going to go real fast now. I'm going to keep up. Number one, renew is the word. Renew your mind with the truths of God's word. Isn't that what Romans 12, 2 says? Renew your mind. Be transformed, uh, transformed and renew your mind. Secondly, realize, realize that rejection and harassment brings more of God's grace, which gives us a desire to do God's will. James 4.6, if you want a reference for that. James 4.6, realize. Thirdly, remember biblical concepts. Remember biblical concepts and then apply them to your life. Probably most of you have learned sometime or another, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all thy ways. What is it? Acknowledge Him in all thy ways. Acknowledge Him and He shall bring it to pass. I think I always get Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 mixed up with Psalm 37 for some reason. But that's the, the verse. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Remember biblical concepts. Apply them to your life. So many times we, we, try, to remember th uh, we try to do things and do them with our own understanding. And the, the, the writer of Proverbs is telling us we're not to lean on our own understanding, but God's understanding, God's principles, God's word. Number four, respect. Respect the prompts of the Holy Spirit. Respect the prompts of the Holy Spirit and apply God's truth to daily living. Think of the verse there in Romans, Romans chapter 8 and verse 13 would be the verse uh, to go with this principle here. Romans 8.13, For if we live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Respect the prompts of the Holy Spirit. Number five, relate with the gospel. Can you relate with the gospel? Well, if you're saved, you should. Because that's what you're saved by, is the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you just say, well, I'm saved, and I forget about that, the death, burial, and resurrection. That's not important anymore. No, it's, it's important for every day of your life. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you draw upon His power to do what's right. You can read Romans chapter 6 through chapter 8 to, to, to see how uh, Paul uh, emphasizes that. Number six, regard the reputation of Christ. 
regard the reputation of Christ. It's more important than pleasing ourselves because of our love for the Lord. John 14 and verse 21. John 14, 21. Regard the reputation of Christ. Number seven, recognize that we're not alone. Recognize that we're not alone because the Lord has told us He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He says, I'll be with you always. Matthew 28, 20. Uh, Hebrews 13, 5. Recognize we're not alone. Number eight, repulse evil. Repulse evil and do not secretly desire to do what we condemn in others. Romans 2, 2 verse 1. Repulse evil. And then number nine, resign your will. Resign your will before God and man without any trace of pride or rebellion. Proverbs 8, 13. So you have nine principles there that will help you to stand alone in the wicked world. Renew, realize, remember, respect, relate, regard, recognize, repulse, and resign. Those are the nine right there. Now, lastly, think with me of a third thing here. We've looked at the society that was destitute. We've looked at a saint who was devoted to God, but notice a ship, a ship designed by God. Notice in back in, in Genesis chapter 6 and beginning in verse 13, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch, and this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the uh, ark should be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, <coughs> and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with the lower, second, and the third story shalt thou make it. Now, notice down in Verse 22, what it says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Now you have to understand that God was asking Noah to do things that he had never heard of before. What? What do you want me to do here? You want me to make a, a ship or a some kind of, you want me to make this wood project? This is not just junior high uh, shop, is it? This is a big project. This isn't something you do in your garage or your basement. This was something that Noah had never heard of before. God said, Noah, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. Noah said, what's a flood? God said, a flood is what will take place when I make it rain. Noah said, what's rain? Noah had no idea what God was talking about, and so the nearest body of water was probably even 500 miles away. And can you imagine what people were saying about Noah? The Bible tells us that for the next 120 years, Noah and his sons built an ark that God had commanded them to build. And the specs came from God. 
they couldn't go down uh, to the uh, shipbuilding yards and, and get the blueprints. They couldn't go on computer and say how to make it, you know. The specs came from God. The design was of God. There's something here interesting about this ship that uh, Noah built. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 21, that the ark was a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn there. Uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. Let's just turn there and look at that. Uh, we're observing the Lord's table tonight, and so this is right along with what, uh, uh, what we're looking at here is First uh, Peter chapter 3 and beginning in verse 18. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. And then verse 21, he says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me just say concerning verse 20 there that it was the ark which saved Noah, not the water, as some people try to have us believe. It wasn't the water that saved. Baptism does not save. But baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the ark is a picture of our Savior and our salvation. And just as God saved Noah from the judgment that came through a ship, that God saves us from judgment that comes through His Son. Now, notice some things about Noah's ship and we, how we see Christ in this ship. Notice, first of all, the ceiling of the ship. Uh, and I'm not talking about that kind of a ceiling. I'm talking about an S-E-A-L-I-N-G, the ceiling of the ship, Okay. Notice verse 14 back in Genesis chapter 6. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make it in the ark and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Uh, this ship was to be made out of cypress wood. Uh, cypress wood is a very endurable wood. It does, does not rot. Gopher wood in the Bible is a type of the humanity of the Lord Jesus. And the ark symbolized Jesus becoming man. And just as the wood had to be cut down in order to provide an ark of safety, Jesus had to be cut down, that is, crucified. But notice that Noah was to cover the ark with pitch, or tar, we might call it. it he was covering both the inside and the outside with pitch. Now, this was to keep the waters of judgment out. And the word pitch is a very interesting word. It comes from a Hebrew word, uh, and only on one occasion is the word translated pitch. Just one time. On every other occasion, the word is translated atonement. And God was saying, Noah, I want you to cover the outside of the ark and the inside of the ark with atonement. I want you to cover the inside and the outside. 
And that's why Jesus came to this earth as a man. He came to make atonement for our sins. His atonement for sins is the only pitch that will keep the waters of God's judgment from our lives. So we see the sealing of the ship. Secondly, we see the size of the ship. Verse 15, And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. That ship was to be 450 feet long. It was to be 75 feet wide. It was to be 45 feet high. It was 45 feet high. It was uh, uh, actually, uh, its total size was about 3 million cubic feet. Now, modern shipbuilders tell us the dimensions are the most ideal measurements to ensure the safest, safest and the most seaworthy craft. Now, what lesson can you learn from this? Well, can we expect anything less from God to make the safest and uh, the most seaworthy ship? Its shape was more like a big box. You could say that it was a huge floating coffin, if you please. When people saw it, they saw death. Now again, the ship was symbolic, though, of the death of the Lord Jesus. It is in His death that we are delivered from the wrath to come. But the point I want us to see is that it was big enough to accommodate anybody who wanted in. In this massive ship, God was saying, whosoever will, let him come. Nobody had to perish. Anyone could have come if they believed. God made a way of escape for whosoever would come. So we see the ceiling, the size. Thirdly, we see the structure. In verse 16, it talks about the window and the size there and the door uh, that was, uh, was to be put in it. And there was only one door in this ship. The door was at the bottom of the ship, so anybody could get in. Uh, you didn't have to be able to fly or to jump or to climb to get in. There's only one door of salvation. Jesus said He was that door. He's the door that the blind can walk through, the lame, the deaf, the young, the old, the door that anyone can come through for salvation. And then there was only one window. And it was at the very top. You know, a person could not look out or around. They could just look up. When a man comes to Jesus, he has to look up to God. And then there were three floors to the ship. When a person is saved, he's saved body, soul, and spirit by God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we see, we see the structure of the ship has a great lesson. Notice, fourthly, the security of the ship. The security. Go down to verse 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee, and of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shall thou bring into the ark to keep them alive from thee, or with thee, they shall be male and female of the fowls after their kind and the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing of, uh, of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. 
Now, the ark reminds us of the eternal security of the believer. This was an unsinkable ship. Why? Was it because Noah was such a great carpenter? No, I'm sure he did a good job. He was following God's instructions. But the security of those on board this ship did not depend upon Noah's ability as a shipbuilder. You go over to chapter uh, 7 and verse 1, and it says, And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. God didn't tell Noah to go in, but to come in. Did you notice that? He didn't say, get in there. He said, come in. God was in the ship, and God was with Noah the whole time he was in the ship. If the ark went down, then God was going down too. The little boy was saying his prayers one night, and he prayed for his dog. And then he t- prayed for his friends. And then he prayed for his mom and his dad. And then he said, oh yes, God, please take care of yourself. Because if anything happens to you, we're in a real mess. And that's true. If anything happens to God, we're in a real mess. The ship was unsinkable, for God is indestructible. We are secure, as God is eternal. And so, in the ark, we see the ceiling, the size, the structure, and the security. Now, lastly, we see Christ there in that ship in the supply. The supply. In verse 21, it says, And take thou unto thee of all, the, all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. There were provisions in that ship to meet their every need. You know what? Salvation brings sustenance and supply that this world knows nothing about. And I'm glad I can say this evening, I'm a passenger on the HMS Deliverance. How about you? Are you on that ship? Let me say, in closing, the utmost importance that we learn to follow directions. God gave Noah very specific instructions, and Noah, for Noah it was crucial that he followed them. God was planning the destruction of a wicked world. And the deadline was 120 years. And the Lord gave Noah instructions on how to survive God's judgment. You know, most of the problems we're plagued with today are the result of not following instructions. How many times have we tried to assemble something and we get stuck because we did not read the directions? Anybody relate to that? Yeah, I know. Some of you are just kind of... You have a problem here, and that's pride because you won't even admit that, okay? You know, students in school falter and they fail mainly because they won't listen to the teacher's instructions. But God gave Noah instructions for survival. Uh, He needed to follow them precisely because his family's lives depended upon it. A wrong wood or the wrong dimensions would have been disaster. And God has given us instructions today how to survive the judgment of hell, how to live a victorious Christian life. We must follow them precisely. We escape hell by trusting Jesus Christ as our Savior, and we live the Christian, the victorious Christian life by obeying God's Word, God's instructions. God really made it very simple. 
And we've made it difficult because of our selfishness and our carnality. And so God commanded Noah to perform a difficult task, and Noah obeyed. His obedience brought blessing to the entire world. Noah's obedience reveals several character traits. Notice them real quick. It, he was resourceful. He was resourceful. He got the ark constructed. He was diligent. He was determined. He was going to complete the task. He was thorough. He was accurate in building the, the ark according to God's instructions. So he was resourceful. He was diligent. He was thorough. And then he was courageous. He was a courageous enough to obey God in spite of all the fun and all the mocking that was made of him. You know, that gives us a wonderful example, the type of character that each one of us should desire to display in our life. I th hope you see tonight, even by looking again, be reminded of the, the ark, which we've heard this story uh, since we were little. If uh, any of us have been around church very long, we've heard about Noah's ark. It's interesting how uh, that seems to be a popular theme for decorating children's uh, rooms these days, too. But there's a wonderful message in the Noah's Ark, how that that's a representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of salvation, just as the table here that we're going to uh, fellowship around this evening is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we need to be thankful for that. Let's pray. Father in heaven,